there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Welcome back to Giants, an award-winning Spotify original. I'm Owen Blackhurst, and you're listening to a one-off COVID-19 episode in association with our mates at We Came To Win. I'm joined by their host, Nando Veer. Nando, how's it going, mate? Uh, Just living the dream here in the makeshift recording studio I've built inside my closet because my producer thinks there's a little too much echo in my living room. The struggle is real, mate. I'm in a very similar situation. Yeah, you know, the things we do for these people to get the content to them, they'll never appreciate us. So, this is what we're going to do. You'll hear our story first. It's about Hampton and Richmond Borough, a semi-professional club managed by a black cab driver who had their season and possibly future turned upside down by Corona. After that, Nando and the good people at We Came To Win have got a hell of a story for you. What's it about, Nando? It's about a Champions League match that was played just before the coronavirus story really got going and one scientist called it a biological bomb. That sounds absolutely terrifying. Right, here we go then. Giant. Football stories that matter, told by the people who were there. Hope you enjoy it. It was a weird week because most games were being lost to the to the virus as such. Virtually every division went on that Thursday and Friday, and the only standing league that was, you know, still holding out with the games was the National League. That's Gary McCann. By day, a black cab driver. By night weekend and every other waking moment, a football manager. Both of his lives have been turned upside down. We could only take our lead from the National League. This is Jacques, the chairman, unable to protect his club as all of the football stopped because of coronavirus. We weren't in a position, unfortunately, to say, no, we're not going to play. And so we went ahead with the game. Was it the right thing to do? Who knows? Football is back. The economics demanded it. But forget the top tier of the game. What about down at semi-pro level, where players and staff are part-time, where volunteers are vital, where playing behind closed doors is financially impossible, and where not playing at all is potentially terminal. This is the story of a club that had its season derailed by COVID-19, and because of a lack of direction from the league, faces an increasingly uncertain future. The team is Hampton and Richmond Borough, The National League is the sixth tier, and their nickname is the Beavers. Let's go. stream to lovely Hampton and the wooded country of Hampton Court Palace. One of the first things that strikes the visitor is the beauty of William and Mary Walk, bordered by the famous chestnuts and flanked by the Wren Fountains. Sitting on the north bank of the Thames, 
Hampton is a leafy suburb with a population of 19,000. It's home to Henry VIII's old place, Hampton Court Palace. Henry added, among other things, the chapel and Great Hall, the gardens... More importantly, it's home to the Beverly Stadium. My name's Jacques Lavars. I am the chairman at Hampton Richmond Borough Football Club. It's got so much character at the Bev, all of the stands. Some of them aren't even stands. Some of them are, you know, I don't know what you call them. And it just gives it that real local feel. And, and it's like a little oasis in the middle of Hampton. And I love that. I love that about it. The club is right at the heart of the community. Right, OK, my name is Tracy Hathaway. Um, I've been coming down here since I was about four years old. It's just a huge part of our lives in Hampton. I mean, I've got my sister that works here. I've got my partner who is at the club decorating the whole place and doing so much work there. Um, I've got my brother doing voluntary stuff outside. My son comes and helps me on the bar when I need it. I've got my niece who does the top shop. You become like a huge family. Yes, um, name is uh, Gary McCann. I'm first team manager for Hampton. And Gary's Bowl. been here for two seasons and has fallen head over heels in love with the place. It creates an atmosphere. It has that village sort of, you know, tree line feel to it. The noise, you know, that can be created from in the, you know, the different stands and the different areas of the pitch is heard from afar. And, you know, from the pitch and the dugout when you're hearing the, you know, the faithful shout and scream and, and sing. As I say, it's a, it's a proper football club. Hampton might be a former home to royalty, but proper football clubs need proper fans. My name is uh, Alec Barry and I've been supporting Hampton for about 15 to 16 years now. Go to the Bev on a match day and you will hear one voice screaming, Beavers! Louder than anyone else. Meet AJ. AJ lives for the Beavers. I'll do anything these days to get through a week to get to a Saturday afternoon. But if it means I have to have a rubbish week and eat too much junk food and don't work out for a whole week. I'll do it just so I can get through to a Saturday and be like, right, smash it. Let's have a couple of pints, let's enjoy ourselves. And I don't care if we lose 7-0, I'm in front with my mates. Hampton is a small club in a league of small clubs. The 558 fans they average every match day is low and they are bottom of the budget table. But they're right at the top when it comes to heart and soul. After necessary budget cuts last summer to ensure financial stability, the season started atrociously. Eight losses in the first 11 games, bottom of the league, miserable. Then Jamal Lowe, a former player with a 20% sell-on clause in his contract, was sold for a significant fee between two professional clubs in a higher league. And some much-needed cash was on its way to the Beavers. Jacques can explain. The Jamal money is is a, is a huge windfall for a club like I mean it you know it happens once in a lifetime to be honest to this level anyway you know I can't go into figures but it was you know it was a lot of money for for a club like ours certainly to get us through that initial budget cut that we had and to allow us to improve the playing squad to a, a level which was sufficient for the National League South. Jacques is a fan first, so he rolled the dice. Here's Gary. With the introduction of the three or four key signings, experience it at the spine of the team, you see a you know a massive improvement happen, and and the team just started to to pick up momentum and started to create you know we started to create a real belief and confidence in the change room that something could be achieved. They won the next four on the spin. My name's Ryan Hill. I play centre forward or out wide as a winger. Free kick on the edge of the penalty box. Um, Ryan Hill is over it and Ryan Hill's gone for goal and has scored! It's gone straight through. 
Hampton and Richmond have scored a sixth goal. We can achieve something here. We can push on, get out of the relegation zone. And then it changed from, instead of being rock bottom of the table, we were looking up, we were thinking, how, how many games until we can push into the playoff positions? Who's our rivals around us? And who do we need to be? The Beavers had lift off. Gray flicks it on and Jake Gray might be on the run here and Nico Muir is in the middle here. Nico Muir is through on goal. He has just scored on his debut. It's 5-1 Hampton and Richmond. They were scoring freely. It is Hampton and Richmond six. It is six, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. sorry. It and is. they were flying up the table. There was a real, you know, vigour and, and pace and, and threat in the final third and, and that only improved as the season went on. Most teams will tell you that we come up against. They had to be at their utmost best to contain us. The gaffer was excited and so were the fans. I have no doubts that if the league hadn't stopped we would have made playoffs and we'd have been challenging to go up to be fair. I think as such a small village club no one really expects them to be challenging for promotion to the National League Premier where you're playing against all them big teams that have to come down to the Beverly every other weekend. A playoff run would have been brilliant. Promotion would have been gigantic for the club. A chance to go completely full-time, to pick up new fans who currently gravitate to London's bright lights, for Gary to sell his cap, for players to give up the day jobs. And then... And then this happened. News. All Premier League, EFL, Women's Super League and Championship matches are to be postponed until at least April the 3rd over the threat of the coronavirus. An emergency meeting was held after Arsenal manager Mikel Arteta... We will never get an answer why the National League carried on as a pandemic gripped the world. And whether it was finance, inactivity or even stupidity, it doesn't matter because the Beavers had no choice. The players didn't want to play. Who can blame them? People were dying. Here's Ryan from the dressing room. It was weird, you know, personally, like, I've got friends that play up in those divisions and they were saying, yeah, no game. And I was thinking, is this going to be the same for us? Are we going to get there and it be cancelled? And then in the change room, the vibe was, it was sort of like, I can't believe that this is, like, actually happening. Like, I can't believe that the Premier League aren't playing, but we are. We are here at the Beverly Stadium on a very strange day. Uh, this could well be the last game of the 2019-20 season. The game against Oxford City ended in a one-all draw with the Beavers one point closer to the playoffs. The National League continued to prevaricate. And although they didn't cancel the league immediately, Gary was pretty clear as he left the ground. I think I was emotional. There was, there was a, you know, there was an emotional feel to it because the sadness has sort of, sort of overwhelmed you. That you, you, you know, we shook hands and we, we said our byes and we, we honestly thought that it was, you know, it, it, what, what we're experiencing now was going to be the, the scenario. We were seeing it elsewhere. I mean, Fabs is, who's one of our coaches, his father was in Italy and they were in full lockdown. We knew that was coming, and so there was, you know, there was a certain amount of sadness. As I say, I was quite emotional, I think, when I was on my way home because, you know, we had 
taken the, the football team so far as well, there was that overriding feeling that we weren't going to be able to finish the job that we'd worked so hard to do. And it's going to be very difficult for all non-league football clubs in the coming weeks and months without the regular gate money. Uh, who knows what decisions will be made by the various authorities, but yes, it's going, to be a, it's going to be a tough time for a lot of good people here. At this level, no football means more than no gate receipts. It means no revenue, full stop. The Beavers don't get TV money. They aren't selling loads of replica shirts. No football means no raffle tickets, no burger vans and no booze. When the gate's shut, the bar shuts. Here's Tracy. Tracy sees the full picture in her multiple roles. I'm the bar manager at Hampton and Richmond Borough Football Club. I also do the administration, that's all the invoicing, players' wages, organised maintenance. Obviously, we get the income from the gate, which is our main stream of income, but the bar also is. I mean, that goes towards, you know, players' wages, all the utilities that are used around the whole ground, the water, electricity, gas, you know, the, the changing rooms, the, the laundry. Yeah, the income from the gate and the bar is, is our main stream of income, um, which obviously we're feeling the pinch at the moment without it. So, yeah, it's, it's huge. Yeah. Jacques went straight into crisis mode. You know, we initially looked at where we could cost cut, so what can we turn off, as it were, to start looking to mothball the club. There were so many unknowns out there, we don't know, and we still don't know, when we're going to be up and playing football again. History will be the judge of the British government's response to a pandemic. One thing that was decided swiftly was the furlough scheme, where the government would pay 80% of the wages of staff who couldn't work. Despite no income and no idea when the taps would start to flow again, Jacques decided to make up the remaining 20% so the players weren't out of pocket. Ryan is full of admiration. I can't imagine that happening in many teams across uh, our league, but it just shows that the chairman, the management and the players were all in it together, really, and he's grateful for what we've done. And I think we all need to be grateful for the fact that he has um, given us the extra 20% because he didn't need to do that. So, why did he? It's has such a cliche, but, you know, we try to keep a, a sort of a family feel and, and an HRBFC family, as it were, with, with our fans and our staff and, and our players. If you're playing at our football club, you know, we care about you. We want to make sure that we will do the best by you whilst you're playing for the football club, whilst you're our employee. And, and I think, you know, we as a board decided that it was the right thing to do to ensure that the, the players were not missing out on, on that 20%. And if we were in a position to pay it, which luckily we were at the time, that we would, we would honour that. Only three of the playing squad are contracted for next season. Tracy has had to furlough herself. It's how things work in the National League South. Careful management and minimal outgoings means they were OK then. But that was then. Non-league clubs are going out of business across Great Britain. And every day without a fixed return date means the Beavers and countless others are walking the mile. It's a very, very difficult time to start making decisions as football clubs on playing staffs, etc., because you don't have any idea what your budget for next season is going to be. You don't know when you're going to start. It's, you know, you don't know when training's going to be. You don't know if you've got pre-season. You don't know if you've got playoffs. I mean, there's so many unknowns to go out there and start negotiating new contracts, etc., with players is going to be virtually impossible. So I expect there to be a, a, an extended period of limbo before we can really get back to the business of administering football. If football without fans is nothing, 
How are fans doing without football? AJ's missing everything. From the minute that you step through the door, it's, uh, it's Tracy on the front gate, it's all the girls behind the bar, all the girls in the kitchen. They just, from the minute you step in, it's just a family vibe. And it's I think it was something I was missing uh, as a kid, to find people that actually wanted to speak to you the second you walked through their door and wanted to know about your day, wanted to see you have fun and share a great moment with you. It's the togetherness of such a small club. I mean, we're punching above our weight to be at the level that we are now. Um, that's been the case for years, um, financially. And it's the fact that such a small club can have such a big impact on a community like we're seeing at the minute with Tracy going out and de delivering uh, meals and essential goods for people. I just think it's perfect. A football club is more than about what goes on on the pitch. It's a community. Since lockdown, demands for the regular matchday food bank have intensified and Tracy is out delivering and witnessing the impact. Especially when you're seeing people that you would normally see maybe at the football ground and you're doing things for them that, that can help them, stop them from having to go outside. Some people are really, really scared to go outside. Some elderly people are too scared to even go out and get their pension, in which case they haven't got the money then to go and buy food. You know, some of the things I'm hearing and seeing is just, it's so, so sad. But amongst the sadness, she's seeing the strength of humanity in Hampton. The donations have been absolutely overwhelming. I cannot believe the amount that people are donating. I mean, bearing in mind people were bulk buying and, you know, people were sort of worrying about whether they were going to have enough food. The beavers have to survive. They cannot fall into the abyss. People need them. People like AJ. The Beverly has always kind of been a happy place for me. I just fell in love from a young age and I associated it with nothing but good memories. So when I was going through a really torrid time about two years ago and I was um, uh, very close and actually attempting to take my own life, I um, stood on the top of the hill that looks over the ground and I thought, it's Wednesday, You've only got two more days to go and then you're away to some nonsensical team in the south of the country and you can just go and be yourself, just hang on in there and go and do it. And it's the fact that I knew from if I just pushed through them next two days, I could be standing at a clubhouse for a home game or I could be with my mates going to an away game. The people are lost without the club. And the club is, of course, nothing without the characters who make it tick. It's a symbiotic relationship. So we asked them what they miss. The people. We asked Tracy, the bar manager. The people. Oh, my God. I miss the people. Jacques, the chairman. There's nothing quite like going up and shaking someone's hand or giving someone a hug, saying hello to the, the ladies in the kitchen, going and giving Tracy a hug and then having her bend your ear for, for 10, 15 minutes over the various items that need to be dealt with. You know, all those things which sometimes you think are maybe a bit of a chore, but actually, you don't realise how much you enjoy them, and when and you do really miss that. And I miss the football that that happens out on the pitch, and and hopefully the three points that comes with it. Gary, the manager. As I say, I can't wait to get on the training pitch with a group of players and feel the training pitch again, and also feel the confines of the dugout again in a game. I think they're things that we've missed. You just don't know when the next time's going to come round. That's what makes us miss it that bit more. Brian, the player. Just a feeling of like 
when you walk out of the tunnel and you know, right, this is game time. I cannot wait for that. And if I'm 100% honest with you, I need to score in that game. But I'm thinking of the first game of the season. I want to get off to a good start. I want to score. I want to see the fans celebrating again because it would have been a very long wait for them to wait for Conference South football again. And I think it's important that when we get back, that we're all back in it together. And AJ, the fan. That is the most appealing thing to my mental health. The camaraderie that your mates gather around you and go, do you know what, you've had a tough week, let's go. Here's a pint, here's a pint, here's a pint. And before you know it, there's five rounds we've not put your hand in your pocket to pay for a drink because your mates know you've had a bad week. That, that is just the character of people is what brings me back down to the club. What will Tracy do when they finally return? Probably cry. <laughs> Probably cry. Just, uh, I don't know, just embrace everybody that you've missed and yeah as I say I'm not a big drinker but probably on that day um, yeah I'd probably have a drink and just welcome everyone back it's just I, I, I can't even get my head around what, what the day will feel like when when we eventually all come back The Beverly is empty and we do not know when the National League South will return it won't be September it might be January it might be next summer. The beavers aren't dead, but they're swimming upstream, and if things continue, the dam could burst with catastrophic effects. And football is back, but if fans can't meet in the pub, and turnstiles can't creak, and songs can't be sung, is it even football? It isn't in Hampton, and that's what matters. Until that changes, the good people involved will continue working to keep it afloat. Helping those who need it most, and dreaming of being back down the bed. Maybe we'll see you there. Thanks for listening, and we hope you're all Beaver supporters now. Nando, what did you think? All right. That was the most English thing I've ever heard. It was like pure uncut sausage rolls straight into my veins. Uh, I got to admit, I got a little emotional there toward the end because, you know, football, like everything in our lives, ultimately gets thrown into the machinery of global capitalism. But English lower league football is kind of like a holdout. Owen, like what? What? Why is that? Why is lower league football so important in English football culture? I think it, it's always been important because there's so many small towns with teams, right? Because it is it is the national game, but even more so over the last, probably the last decade, as the Premier League and, and the, the other divisions have become so about the money and about sponsorships and you can't have a beer when watch your team. And it's not just that, but I think that, that sense of community and, and, you know, the fun of football, you're not, you know, you're not a number, you know, you're important to the club. Yeah, I mean, it's the only comp I can I can imagine or I can think of is here in the states is kind of like in some small town communities in Texas and stuff. High school football is a, is a, is a big deal, uh, but there's there's just nothing quite like lower league English football in 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 the world. It's it's really just something quite remarkable. So yeah, Owen. Oh yeah, one final question. Why do they call them the Beavers? Right. Well, we've had to. We've been on to the club historian today, um, and the Beverly is situated on Beaver Close. But we're not sure whether Beaver Close came first or the ground came first. And we think it's because 
people didn't want to say, come on, you beveries or, or do you know what I mean? So it just became beavers. And then the close ended up getting called beaver close after it. I might be wrong on that. The historian sent me a very long email and I tried to pick through it. But you know what? They're called the beavers and that's good enough for me. You're listening to Giant. And after the break, Nando's going to tell you a story. Okay, Nando, you're up. Okay, so this is a story about how a seemingly innocuous Champions League match between Atalanta and Valencia actually may have become one of the main accelerants of the coronavirus in northern Italy. We spoke to a Spanish journalist who was there and eventually became Valencia's patient zero. That sounds absolutely chilling. I'm really looking forward to this, even if I probably won't sleep. On February 19th, Atalanta and Valencia ran out onto the field to play their Champions League round of 16 match. These two teams have a real opportunity to be quarter-finalists. The Champions League anthem swirled around the stadium and the players lined up and shook hands. Then the ref blew the whistle and the game got started. Atalanta won the game that night, 4-1, the biggest result in the club's history. But in the weeks after this match was played, the storyline changed, and Atalanta versus Valencia started to make headlines all over the world for a different reason. Because what no one knew that night was that this game would turn out to be deadly. Hola, ¿qué tal? Kike Mateu was at the Atalanta versus Valencia game. Hi, my name is Kike Mateo. I'm a journalist. I work on the sports side and I'm a commentator on the radio. So I travel to all the stadiums where Valencia plays, whether in Europe or in Spain. And uh, I've been with them for 20 years now. For the years that Kike has been commentating on Valencia's games, they've been one of the more successful clubs in Spain. He's seen them win La Liga, the Copa del Rey, and the UEFA Cup. So Atalanta versus Valencia back in February, that game didn't feel like anything out of the ordinary for Kike. I have to be honest with you, it was a regular day at work for me. It was just one more match. It was nothing different. It wasn't the first time, nor the second, or the third time that Valencia played in the round of 16 in the Champions League. Atalanta, on the other hand, haven't won a major trophy since the 1960s. They're an unfashionable club from Bergamo in northern Italy. They call them Regina della Provinciale, which roughly translates to Queen of the Provincial Clubs, which sounds like a backhanded compliment in any language. This was the first time Atalanta had appeared in the Champions League, so it was a huge match for the club. Flick through a newspaper in Bergamo or Valencia, and that was the narrative going into the game. This Cinderella story about a small team from northern Italy facing off against the heavily favored Spaniards. But around this time, another story was starting to emerge. A few days before Atalanta and Valencia played, the first coronavirus death was reported in Europe. And shortly after, more cases were confirmed. But back then, in mid-February, the coronavirus still felt far removed for a lot of people. And when Kike made the journey to Italy to report on the game, he wasn't concerned. Well, truth is that what I was seeing at that moment was what we were all seeing. Nothing. 
There were three confirmed cases in all of Italy on the morning I travelled, and only two in Spain. In other words, the new coronavirus wasn't a problem. Nobody was worrying about it. No one was paying heed to the matter. Nobody was giving special recommendations. Therefore, we travelled as we normally do, with absolute calm. Kike wasn't headed to Atalanta's home stadium in Bergamo, though. Atalanta's ground only holds 20,000 people, so the match was instead held at the San Siro in Milan, the largest stadium in Italy and one of the most iconic in the world. Bergamo has a population of about 120,000 people, and over 40,000 of them made the 50-mile journey to Milan. They packed into cars, buses, and trains, and when they arrived, they were joined by over 2,000 Valencia supporters. The fans massed in the city's plazas and packed into local bars and restaurants, eating, drinking, and singing. Before kickoff, the crowd made their way across the concourse and began to thread through the turnstiles and into the San Siro. And Kike climbed up to his seat in the press box with about 70 other journalists. Everyone was ready for the game. <coughs> Have you ever seen that movie Contagion? It's the Steven Soderbergh movie about a pandemic starring Gwyneth Paltrow and Matt Damon that came out 10 years ago. And like a lot of people, I rewatched it recently. There's this scene that tracks how the virus in the movie spreads through a bar. You see Gwyneth Paltrow sipping on a cocktail and dipping her hands into a bowl of nuts. She passes her credit card to the bartender. The bartender takes the card and swipes it. Thanks. The camera zooms in on each of these tiny interactions and shows how the infection is spread, hand-to-hand, surface-to-surface. What happened at the Atalanta versus Valencia game wasn't part of a Hollywood disaster movie. But looking back at that night, I can't help but think about Contagion. Because what no one knew then, but we can be sure of now, is that the coronavirus was at the stadium that night. And what we also know now is that Northern Italy was on the brink of one of the world's worst outbreaks of the virus. And it's not hard to imagine the many ways that corona could have spread at the stadium that night. Down on the field, you've got 22 players breathing hard, sweating, spitting, and going all out. Football is a contact sport. And during the game, it's not that they touch, they thrash each other, they shove, they punch, they grab. That's normal. Up in the stands, the Atalanta fans were in ecstasy as they watched their team destroy Valencia. There were 40,000 fans who'd come from Bergamo, saw their team score four goals, who hugged so many times during the game, who kissed many times, who had full physical contact. Just imagine how much physical contact they had with each other. And then there was Kike and his colleagues in the press box, sitting shoulder to shoulder. It was the same physical contact we'd have at any other game, under normal circumstances, and any other Champions League stadiums. Indeed, we went down to the press area to eat, and we were all together. Some of us exchanged gear or anything else we might need. It was just the normal kind of thing that you might expect from a group of colleagues all trying to do a job. I'm not a doctor. I'm not an epidemiologist. But when I think about that night at the San Siro, it's as if the stadium was this massive concrete petri dish feeding the virus. The final score was 4-1 to to Atalanta, the biggest win in the club's history. 
Their fans made their way back to Bergamo and celebrated long into the night. And Quique and the 2,000-plus Valencia supporters made their way back to Spain. The back page headlines the next day were dominated by Atalanta's famous victory. But soon, all of that would be forgotten, and a new story would start to emerge. In the aftermath of the game, an outbreak of confirmed coronavirus cases was reported in Bergamo. And back home in Valencia, Quique started to feel sick. What is true is that four days after returning from Italy, I began to have cold symptoms. I couldn't breathe normally. Later, this cough appeared. Every day there was a new symptom. Every day things got a little worse. Meanwhile, more cases were confirmed across northern Italy. In Milan, all the schools and universities were closed, and Kike started to connect the dots. The level of contagion was increasing exponentially, and I began to think that if there was the slightest chance that I'd been infected on my trip to Italy, it had to be verified. And so I went to the hospital. In late February, Kike walked into a hospital in Valencia and asked to be tested for the coronavirus. At the time, there were no confirmed cases of the virus in the region. Kike's test came back positive, and he was immediately put into isolation. And now he was Valencia's patient zero, alone in his hospital room, watching on television as the virus spread across the world. Over the past few hours, fresh cases have been confirmed in countries around the globe. Authorities here are growing increasingly concerned about a rising number of cases. No masses are taking place. Uh, there's been an impact on the Milan Fashion Week at the moment. By mid-March, over a third of the Valencia team and staff had tested positive for the coronavirus. La Liga was shut down entirely. And back in Italy, hospitals in Bergamo were overwhelmed. They're fighting a war here and they are losing. While I was there, I saw how the virus had spread in a terrible way. What seemed like nothing began to be much more. It was like a movie. The virus had managed to dominate the situation. Kike says that he was one of the lucky ones. His symptoms were never too severe. The hardest thing for him was being in complete isolation, away from his wife and kids. While outside the hospital walls, the world seemed to be shutting down entirely, and no one knew what was going to happen. I was absolutely isolated for 24 days. Being isolated from everything, of course from my family for four weeks, psychologically very hard. It's very difficult to endure and I don't recommend it to anyone. For example, one thing I, I missed the most was going out and walking through the streets of the city and hearing the traffic noise. It seems stupid, but it's one of the things we do every day of our lives, and when they take it away from you, it's like, that's my life. Where's my life? I've lost it. No. And I want my life back, and that was one example of something I thought about. I desperately just wanted to hear the noise and the hustle and bustle of the street. In late March, Kike was released from the hospital. He's lived in Valencia for most of his life, but that day he stepped out into a city that was entirely different. By this point, the city of Valencia was practicing social distancing, non-essential businesses were shut down, the football team had stopped playing, and the streets were empty. 
Then, then I became aware of the reality that I had missed. It's not the same to see on television that there's nobody on the streets and going out there and there's nobody. Around this time, people were starting to talk about the potential impact of the Atalanta versus Valencia game. By then, over 7,000 people had tested positive in Bergamo and over 1,000 had died. Nobody can be sure exactly how many cases were the result of the match, but the Italian press started to call it Game Zero. And one scientist described the situation at the San Siro that night as a biological bomb. And that phrase, the biological bomb, appeared in headlines all over the world. The message was clear. Football had been weaponized by the virus. Yeah, yeah. Football is a reason for joy. Football brings people together. Football makes people happy. Different people happy. And football managed to give the virus what it needed to be lethal, which is that joy, that unawareness, those hugs, that contact. It is just what the virus needs to survive and grow, right? So football, with its joy, became a weapon of mass destruction. What's more, while the fans were at the stadium singing, celebrating goals, enjoying themselves and thinking that this was one of the happiest days of their lives, in reality, at that moment, there were many people who were living the worst day of their lives, but they just didn't know it. A lot of people are talking about when and how football is coming back. The K-League and the Bundesliga are back in action, and La Liga and the Premier League plan to return soon. But it still looks like it'll be a long time before supporters can watch their teams play inside a stadium. And according to Kike, that's exactly how it should be. Football is, as a well-known phrase in Spanish says, football is the most important of the least important things. When health is at risk, when health becomes part of the game, there is nothing more important than health. But for crowds to go back to normal, I believe the pandemic must disappear first. And that will depend, obviously, on what the virus decides. Our friend, the virus. I watched one of those K-League games. It was surreal. Hearing the players' voices echo around an empty stadium. The dull thud whenever a ball gets kicked. In one game, artificial crowd noise was pumped through the PA system. It felt a little like the laugh track in a sitcom. And in a weird way, it just made me notice the lack of a crowd even more. When the time is right, and it's safe, fans all over the world will go back to watch their clubs. Atalanta fans will watch their team back in Bergamo. The San Siro will be full again. Valencia fans will return to the Mestalla Stadium. Quique will call their games. And these empty, echoey stadiums will again be filled with chanting and singing and swearing at the referee. But Quique is right. The fans and the owners and the league officials won't have the final say when we all go back to watch football. Ultimately, the virus will decide.
Nando, what an incredible story. I mean, when you're in the stadium and, and talking about the virus like a silent killer, sort of almost walking around, was, it really brings back to me the size of this and, and why the authorities have got to be really, really careful about the next steps. And how's Kike doing? I mean, he must be jonesing to get back. Uh, he's, he's absolutely jonesing to get back. He told me he actually called a FIFA tournament you know, like he he did the play-by-play for a, a FIFA tournament, and he said he was more excited for that than some of the major champions. I mean, he's called the Valencia Champions League final that they lost against Bayern Munich and the one they lost against Madrid. And he said that he was just as excited for this FIFA tournament than that Champions League final. Wow. I mean, he loves football, right? Yeah, I mean, he's I mean, he's he lives for it. I mean, he loves calling the games. He's one of these people who's always on the media, always talking. He talks about a mile a minute. Uh, so, yeah, he's he, he needs to get back soon. <laughs> so then, Nando, people are in need of great audio at the moment. If you had to recommend one episode of We Came to Win for them to check out, which one are you going for? Honestly, as painful as it might be for you, Brits, the Maradona episode is one that I absolutely love. It just, it just gets gets my juices flowing every time. The hairs on the back of my neck stand up. I mean, it's, it's just something that reminds me of a different era because we're never going to see someone like him again in this hyper professionalized world we live in. And it's just, I think it's me and producer Matt's favorite story. Yeah, he's my favorite footballer of all time. So, and where can they check that out? Well, actually, the best place you can listen to it is on Spotify, but you can also listen to it anywhere you get your podcasts. Fantastic. Okay, mate, I think we're done. Shame. I could have carried on. Nando, thanks for getting together to do this. It's been brilliant. Yeah, let's do it again sometime. You know where to find me. We do. And thanks to everyone who has listened to Giant and the people who took the time out to share their stories. It's great to be back. See you soon. Nando. Who else makes We Came to Win with you? We Came to Win is a Gimlet Media production. The team that made this episode are Matthew Nelson, Devin Taylor, and Bobby Lord. Giant is a Spotify original produced by Mundell. I'm the host and narrator, Owen Blackhurst. It's executively produced by Tyo Papula and produced by Seb White. Original music by Harry Harris and commissioned by Alex Aidy. Thanks again to all the beavers who shared their stories. Mm-hmm.